Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. This is one of over a thousand programs we've done since the pandemic began, where we've live streamed. In addition to having a live audience, we have our live audiences back, which is great. Um, This program in in particular uh, is uh, supported and underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation in what we call our Good Lit series. Um, Jennifer's gotten a lot of good attention uh, for her book, uh, a great biography about Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. And we're here to talk about a guy uh, who was so influential, and it seemed like, uh, what I find interesting, you even uh, quoted it, you know, he started off and people thought he was a kook of some kind, and, and, and his ideas ended up being uh, very influential, even to the side who didn't really want that to happen to. You know, that, I think that's, that's the sign that you have a good idea, is when your enemies 20 years later say you were right at least partially. <laughs> at least partially. We don't really like the way it, it worked out, but, you know. So we're going to talk about that intellectual biography uh, tonight. And if you have any questions uh, here in the live audience, uh, we have cards for you to uh, write them up and we'll, we'll take them after we've done about, say, 45, 50 minutes of the program. So welcome to the Commonwealth Club, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have you here and wonderful to read your book. Um, so you start with a quote uh, from Milton Friedman in, in before the titles about that this is, uh, ideas are something that you develop so that in a crisis, when things possibly could change, they're around and there's groups of people who are aware of those ideas that you've educated for them so that maybe those ideas can help solve that crisis or the next crisis or whatever. Um, I thought that was a very long-range thinking idea. And my question is, did he, it, it was a 1982 quote, according to what you said. Yeah. Now, at that time, he was already successful and influential. Do you know how long he thought that way? Did, was there indications when he was a younger man that he already kind of looked at his project that way? Because that's kind of like Plato's project and, you know, those kind of guys, you know? Yeah, was there a master plan yeah, to the, kind yeah, of yeah, sway the, the currents of thought and opinion? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways there were. So you see him writing early in his career about what he called the tides in public opinion or the currents in public opinion, and he said... They run a little bit after the kind of intellectuals and thinkers. And so right now he perceived himself in the 50s. We're in a sort of tide of opinion that was formed 20 years earlier. So to some degree, it was a long game. um, But on the other hand, I don't want to say he saw everything that was going to happen because he was really willing to kind of row, you know, hoe his row and be unpopular and be on the outside as long as he felt like the principles and ideas he was following were the ones that he believed were right. So Yes, he hoped things would change. He had an idea about how long-term change happened, but I think he wasn't at all sure that it would go his way in the end. Yeah. Well, it's remarkable that it did go his way in his lifetime. Um, and as I said at the introduction, that, that even his enemies, the, enemies, the Keynesians, you know, had to adopt some of the ideas because even now when, when people say, um, let's, let's go right to the present uh, because you have in the epilogue something about, well, QE, the quantitative easement, um, seemed like it really ruined the monetarist theory, but it really didn't. And why don't you explain that? Because I think a lot of people look at that, and if they just look at it simply, they make that assumption. And part of your book is really interesting on how it's, it's a particular form of measuring the money that, and, and 
how to nuance that and everything is something yeah. it argues over, but it's different. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the reputation of any great thinker isn't static. It goes up and it goes down. And there was a real down um, for Friedman in the wake of the great financial crisis when there was a huge monetary expansion <clears throat> directed by the Federal Reserve, which would have been by Friedman's monetarism, you know, immediately caused great inflation. Um, but a lot of that money was held by banks because at the same time, reserve requirements were raised or other regulations. So the money didn't end up circulating in the economy in the same way. You fast forward to coronavirus relief, <clears throat> and that was fiscal stimulus, mm -hmm. and it went right into people's pocketbooks, right into the banks. So it actually more closely resembled what Friedman talked about and when he talked about printing money or monetary ease. And so a lot of Friedman watchers and admirers said, wow, we just saw a big jump in M2. This was his favorite measure of money. We're going to have inflation. And it was interesting for me to watch because a lot of, you know, very highly placed people in the Federal Reserve said, no, 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 inflation isn't something we need to worry about. That sort of era has come and gone. And then a couple months later, they're like, well, maybe we have a little inflation, but it's transitory. And, you know, now we're, <laughs> now we're in a longer inflationary episode that's not as severe as the 1970s. But what's really interesting is you could analyze what the Fed did is what Friedman called a helicopter drop, which was, you know, dropping money on a community. And he said, this will create inflation. And sometimes we need inflation. Um, but that's exactly what was done. We needed some inflation and we got maybe a little more than we needed. Yeah. And, and as we were saying before, uh, when we were just discussing, we also gave a lot of people the idea that maybe they don't have to work you know, as, as part of the helicopter drop. But, but uh, the, the whole idea that the government can be not a manager of the economy, but, but something that is, facilitates a strong economy rather than the waves going up and down. Um, and when he, his ideas really went in, there was the long period, of, which is in the early 80s, there was a long period of time of stability for 25 years, relatively speaking. Uh, there, were, there was that one drop, I remember the day in 87 when the market dropped right. by one third. And I remember I was on the 41st floor of a, a building in New York City and I looked out and I thought, one third of the building should have just disappeared. Like, like <laughs> our, our wealth dropped by one third in one day. And, and it's not our wealth. It's, it's, it's a different measure. Um, but I think that that's one of the fascinating things about his ideas is what do we mean by wealth? What do we mean by his ideas were pre-GDP even, you know, be, before you measured things. And how do you go about measuring what the economy is doing? So let's go back and take him, take him as a young man and, sure. and go a little bit through his intellectual biography, how he came to this. Um, so, so we can skip maybe his childhood and stuff like that and so that people have something to read about about his personal life. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then say, okay, so he shows up as a college, as a grad student at the University of Chicago? Uh, University of Chicago was graduate uh, a degree in, in economics, yeah. So, and he got there in 1932. It's the depth of the Great Depression. It's 25% unemployment. It's the unfolding of the bank crisis. And that was really what propelled him to choose economics. He's very mathematically skilled. And so he had thought before, well, maybe I'll be an actuary or maybe I'll get a PhD in math. And as the Great Depression started unfolding, he said, no, actually, this is what I need to learn about. This is what I need to know. Um, so yeah, that was the first moment when he arrived. And the Great Depression, understanding it, developing solutions for the, the great economic upheaval and poverty it created. That was sort of his life's work. So it really started there in the early 1930s. He wasn't from a poor family, though. Well, uh, you know, was not 
He was he was definitely not from a wealthy family. Right. His family was able to be insulated. They were basically small business owners in mm -hmm. New Jersey. Um, and he had three elder sisters. And at the time, so all of the Friedman children were just ex top of the class. Actually, I found one sister at like a higher class ranking than him and won more awards in him than high school, which was hard to do, believe me. But this, <laughs> the way the family worked was that the girls were expected to work after high school and the boys' education was prioritized. Mm -hmm. So some, some of his sisters actually supported him in the early years of graduate school because they were working. So mm -hmm. his father had passed away at that time, but his mother still ran a business. He had three sisters out in the labor market and he was able to get through graduate school. So he wasn't impoverished, but he could see it around him. And they would say <clears throat> in Chicago at the time, people would just knock on your door and say, we're starving. Do you have a potato? Do you, do you have any food whatsoever? You know, so so he was living through that and aware of it, even if he was somewhat insulated because of, of being in school. Mm -hmm. All right. So and the University of Chicago at the time, the, what was its reputation for the economics department? Already had a reputation. I mean, the, the Rockefeller yeah. Foundation is kind of the money behind the University of Chicago. Right? That's right. So it has a reputation for. Um, being very serious, eventually they'll actually abolish the football team. The president decides we don't need a football team. This is distracting students from their studies. So <laughs> they had a football team. It wasn't a good one and it was on the way out. So that kind of tells you about the culture <laughs> of the University of Chicago. And they were also really known for taking smart students of whatever background. So it's interesting. It would have been very difficult for Friedman to go to Princeton University, which was right up the street from him in Rahway, New Jersey, because they had quotas on admitting Jewish students. And Chicago was much more open mm -hmm. in that way. And so it really had this kind of no holds barred intellectual culture. And it was pretty intense. So uh, there's stories like if someone, the professor would ask a student a question, if they got it wrong, he would like throw a piece of chalk at them. <laughs> it was almost abusive. And you, so- You don't do that at Stanford? No, no. Sometimes I feel like it, but I don't do it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so so that was this just like immersion into a world of ideas that happened right away. And you, you tell about the grad students kind of having a social life at night in, in the department and, and, and that it was an amazing group of people, uh, at least in terms of how they all ended up. Well, what's really interesting is so I talk about the Room 7 gang. They found like a basement study actually it was a storeroom. And they sort of took over this vacant space and it became their kind of jam session where they would hang out. And it was in addition to Milton Friedman, Paul Samuelson was there, um, you know, later became his sort of great, you know, doppelganger in the field. Um, George Stigler, who became his friend, um, Aaron Director, who was the brother of the woman he would marry. And, and, and what's remarkable is these men connected. They had this like, you know, sort of imagine the dorm room late night bull session going all the time, arguing about economics, very close, very tight. And they all end up at the University of Chicago 20 years down the road. And they all become his sort of lifelong friends. And they together create this Chicago school, which looks skeptically at the dominant Keynesian interpretation of the Great Depression and also of the sort of government's role in the economy. So these three years that he spends at the University of Chicago really just kind of lay the foundation for the rest of his career. So now one of those bold ideas was to say that the Great Depression was maybe caused by the Fed or not caused by the Fed, but exacerbated by the exacerbated Fed. By the Fed. Yeah, exacerbated exactly. by the Fed, exactly. Not caused. Yeah. Uh, and, and everybody rejected this idea as, as just an outrageous thing even to say, but, but 
one of the leaders of the Fed eventually admitted that that was probably true. That's right. Bernanke so that's said an interesting it. story we, to we tell. Probably, it is a story. Yeah. Should we call up some of the slides? That's a great idea. About that? Maybe idea. we can do a few illustrations. Let me see if yeah. I can advance. I'll, I'll, uh, okay, so, so now we're heading back to Rahway. Um, this is Friedman as Boy Scout. You can see him on the left in that rather fetching cap. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, this I think really goes to the way that he had a pretty unusual boyhood for a, a child of Jewish immigrants in that he grew up in small town America. He didn't grow up in New York. He didn't grow up in Chicago. And he, you know, he had this kind of traditional Boy Scout um, upbringing. And uh, here he is with his wife, Rose. Um, this picture you can't see because it's not in color, but they're in front of the cherry trees in Washington, D.C. And so we know that uh, tradition of taking a selfie or a picture with your significant other in front of the trees goes back at least until 1935. And Rose was of that group that uh, uh, she was actually in his classes and her maiden name was director. And in Chicago, they had assigned seating according to the alphabet. And so almost every class was Rose Director seated next to Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman was not going to let that opportunity go to waste. <laughs> and so um, they became very close friends and eventually a couple. And, and her brother was in that group, too. Yes. Older brother. Aaron Director. And he is one of these characters I follow in the story who was a man of great intellect who really exerted his influence through um, speaking with others and students, and he didn't publish very much, mm -hmm. but you can nonetheless um, really see his influence, particularly on the law and economics movement. He was had a position at Chicago Law School. Um, and we were just talking about the monetary history of the United States. And this is a woman who wrote this book with Friedman, Anna Jacobson Schwartz. And um, she had, you know, a really interesting uh, career. She worked hand in hand with Friedman. She really did the lion's share of the research for this book. And as I talk about, she really was terribly mistreated by her colleagues. Friedman was one of the few people who could kind of recognize her um, and what she was capable of contributing. So we'll, we'll go back to that. We can dig into that. And then, oh, here's a fun fact. If you're wondering um, what economics used to look like, this is a material I dug out from the archive. This is I have stacks and stacks of these that Anna Schwartz created. This is literally measuring the quantity of money in the economy of the United States at different historical moments. The top line says vault cash. Each column is member banks of the Federal Reserve, non-member, postal savings. She's literally adding it all up. And this is the type of thing, if you wanted this information today, you'd sit down, you'd hit a few strokes on the keyboard, and actually probably the Federal Reserve database would cough this out for you. Mm. None of this existed. So Anna Schwartz literally created this, put it together, and then they spent, you know, more than a decade working on the book. Let me see. And, and this, her methods and her uh, procedures formed the base of what they eventually kept developing further and further and further until they have what they have today. Yes. And so yeah. this is all those charts and graphs turn, oh, sorry, columns of numbers turn into this graph. And you can see even from a distance that dip is demonstrating it, during the Great Depression, what they were able to find is that 30%, there was a 30% reduction in the quantity of money in circulation in the United States. So this became the kind of basis of saying, look, this is what made the Great Depression so bad. This is why it lasted so long. And it kind of seems self-evident. Now we know there were bank failures. We know people lost all their money. Um, of course, it would make sense that money disappeared, but no one was really thinking in these terms when they wrote this book. And so this really crystallized how much 
the the money supply and the banking system were really at the crux of the crisis. And again, you have to remember there was no deposit insurance in the Great Depression. So if you put your money in the bank and the bank went under, you didn't get any of your money back. So people were losing their life savings. Um, and that was part of the crisis that you could have worked hard, you could have saved, you could have put your money in a bank and then you could lose it all. Let me see if I, the next one is. Uh, uh, yes, I'll, I'll talk a little bit. We, uh, uh, one of the themes in my book is the way that Friedman worked so closely with a variety of different um, women economists and collaborators. And Schwartz is the most famous. She was co-author on this famous book. Um, but his wife, Rose, also worked very closely with him. She helped write his first popular book, Capitalism and Freedom. And then she also really pushed him into the public eye. She said, you should write this column for Newsweek and I'll, I'll help you. We'll brainstorm ideas. Because he was like, I can't write a column every three weeks. That's a lot of work. She's like, I'll help you. <laughs> and so she's kind of a, I, I call them the hidden figures. Also, her best friend, Dorothy Brady, um, was connected with Friedman's research and consumption. And then Margaret Reed, who went on to become his colleague at Chicago. And all of these women had these really fruitful working relationships with Friedman and it was very, there were very few women in the field of economics. And I really was so surprised to find that at this moment in time, he had so many of these collaborators who were women. And so, um, yeah, I sort of try to puzzle out in the book, like, what was it about Friedman that drew these women to him or that enabled him to sort of see what they had to offer the field that others didn't? Um, and I really, I think that's like a secret of his success. When I step back and think, how did he do it all? I think, well, he had some help. <laughs> um, in, in your book, uh, you, you kind of mentioned that it was partially due to the fact that he was not considered, and his work was not considered um, in the mainstream. Yeah. And as a result of that, he, he had convinced other people to do it. And in this field, the women, the one field, you can use it, you, you know where I'm going. Yeah. The one field that, where women were accepted was? Consumption economics. So studying, buying, and selling. It was thought, well, oh, well, women are the, obviously, in many cases, the main, you know, consumers in their families. Mm -hmm. So somehow this meant that women economists could study those decisions more easily. And so these women, like Dorothy Brady and Margaret Reed, had this enormous data set that also they had created and found through their surveys. They knew a lot about how people actually made decisions about buying and spending. And so... While most of the rest of the field of economics had moved on to they were using more sophisticated math mathematics, doing more top-down modeling, kind of predicting the federal budget and interest rates and how all this would interact, these women were thinking, like, how do people make decisions about what they buy and sell? And Friedman, um, <clears throat> eventually, he so Rose and Dorothy wrote a paper together, and then they were sending each other letters, and Friedman kind of grabbed this letter from Dorothy and he writes back, you know, so he sort of jumps in the correspondence. So, because I have all these letters and I'm like, what's he doing in here, you know? And then they start debating and arguing. The conversations carry on in their summer house and they come up with a new theory for how people, you know, make decisions. And it's, it's basically, it's called now permanent income. And the idea is that people often make economic decisions based on their sense of their life as a whole, their life cycle as a whole, rather than just their financial picture at this smaller scale moment. So it kind of opens the aperture to thinking more broadly about how people um, make consumption decisions. And again, this seems like very self-evident to us perhaps, but it was not in, in uh, the time that uh, they were working. And so then what happened was there was an opportunity for a woman to be hired at the University of Chicago because they had like one space 
for a woman economist on their faculty. And the, the person who held that chair was retiring. And so Freeman decided he wanted one of his friends to get hired, preferably both of his friends. So he sat down and he wrote up as a memo to get them hired uh, the ideas of Dorothy Brady and Margaret Reed and tried to you know, get his colleagues to buy in. Well, they decided to hire Margaret Reed. They never did hire Dorothy Brady. But then once he had this memo, he kind of wrote it into another paper and another paper. And then it turned into this book, A Theory of the Consumption Function. And that book, along with the monetary history, really restored his reputation from being seen as, as we were saying, sort of an oddball or someone doing something unpopular, unfashionable, to suddenly he's in the center of the field with these two incredible books. Um, And so for me, what was so fascinating was to be like, and both of these books were collaborative projects in a way. Um, So yeah, that was a really neat discovery. Yeah. And there were no co-authors on the cover. There were no co-authors on the cover of that. And, And it is, you know, he's very generous in the introduction, but there's a way in which in the private correspondence, in the beginning, it's our idea. And then all of a sudden it's my idea. You know, and, and so somewhere it kind of shifted and changed. Um, so, yes, it, you know, he, he, his open-mindedness only went so far. Yeah. Yeah. As usual. Let me see if I have anything as we move into maturity. So, yes, a big jump forward. Here's another um, moment. This comes after Friedman has really established himself um, as an expert. Um, it started with the Great Depression, which was a deflation, and he was able to also apply those ideas to the question of inflation. And so you can see by 1969, he's kind of the all-seeing visionary on the cover of Time magazine. And I have to remind everyone, this is when being on the cover of Time magazine was kind of the pinnacle of American cultural influence, (laughs) (laughs) really meant something. Um, And then he becomes increasingly influential across the 1970s. Here is a picture of him with um, George Schultz, his great friend and colleague, and they're uh, uh, in the Oval Office with Richard Nixon. And um, Nixon always wanted to be on Friedman's good side, but he had trouble staying there, <laughs> as, <laughs> as he did with many people. But um, uh, he always he knew at this point that it would be very advantageous to him to have Milton Friedman's endorsement of his economic program. So he was always trying to curry favor with Friedman. And then meanwhile, Friedman was always sending him very critical missives, um, often using Schultz as an intermediary. Negative income tax. I don't think very many people realize how close that came to actually being used that long ago. Yeah, yeah it's a fascinating story. So, so one of Friedman's um, earliest ideas was for the idea of a guaranteed minimum income, and he felt like this would provide a sort of basic social safety net that would be also compatible with market exchange and market ideas. And it he makes his first proposal for this in 1939. I found this sort of parchment paper in the archive. And I was like, what is this? Like, wow, this is the first version of the negative income tax. Then it became a negative income tax. And then during the Nixon administration, it was a family assistance plan. And this would have been a basic stipend to American families. Similar, you may be thinking, to some of the ideas that are being discussed in today's Congress. And it came all the way, all the way through Congress, and it just didn't quite make it. It was picked up by Nixon. Um, originally, it had support from the left and the right, and then eventually it had enemies on both the left and the right, and it just sort of collapsed. Um, but it's one of these episodes that shows how central Freeman's thinking became to American politics and policy. Um, so let's see. And then we uh, another image I love is um, Friedman as this sort of eerie 
head of the world, a center of the globe. I'm not exactly sure what the, the analysis is here, but um, you can see it's trying to depict the many uh, tributaries and the many vectors of influence he has at this point in time. Um, and then I'll just end, oh, uh, that is 1970, I believe. Um, and yeah, and then this is uh, Arthur Burns. Maybe we should pause here. We could talk a bit about Arthur Burns. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, so Arthur Burns was um, actually Friedman's, uh, a man he considered his surrogate father, you know, a great mentor of his and um, one he met when he was in Rutgers University and, and uh, Burns was his teacher. And they had this sort of lifelong friendship. And actually a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I know about Friedman, I know because he told Arthur Burns in this correspondence that you know, encompassed their whole lifetime. And so he would write him these very personal letters and they're all preserved in Arthur Burns's archive. And then Burns would write back, but really it was Friedman who was kind of using Burns as a sounding board for what should I do next? I'm feeling this way. I'm worried about this. Um, and so time goes on and Arthur Burns is eventually elevated to the head of the Federal Reserve by Richard Nixon. And so there's this whole spate of newspaper articles saying, you know, oh, we have a Friedmanite Fed now, you know, everyone's going to believe money matters and, you know, Burns is going to fight inflation. And in a reversal that's very shocking and upsetting to Friedman, Burns decides instead to advocate for wage and price guidelines and eventually wage and price controls, which suggests that he does not believe Friedman's analysis of inflation. And it puts him in a very different political position than Friedman. And so I found these letters in the archive, it's very intense letters that Friedman writes to Arthur just saying, I'm betrayed, you know, I'm heartbroken. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how can this be? And it's sort of the, you know, got rid of any myth I had that economics was boring and dry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the passion in these letters is so intense and they may have a very strong break because Burns is really mad. He's like, everyone's criticizing me. Like, you should be on my side. And so um, they kind of repair it and they keep up a personal connection, but something's really lost. Mm -hmm. And so that for me was so interesting in showing how out of the mainstream Friedman's ideas were, you know, that the Federal Reserve chair was kind of declaiming responsibility for inflation. And then also that, you know, Friedman did pause and he did say to himself, wow, I'm going to have to criticize publicly my best friend. Mm -hmm. But he never said, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. He never even considered, I just won't say anything because he was the number one critic of the Fed. And he said, he wrote Burns a letter. He said, if any other Fed chair did this, I would have to criticize him. And I have to criticize you too. And so even his oldest and deepest friendship, he felt he, he had to place that under his devotion to his ideas and his principles. Mm -hmm. And so- that also tells you a lot about sort of how he defined himself and how he defined integrity. I'm sure you went into this in the book at all, but I know he and Rose uh, married for a long time and partners in, in a lot of their work, they disagreed about certain economic things at different times and so on. Did he ever, did he ever have to throw her under the bus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, never. It's, it's interesting because uh, around the time that, so Rose helped him put together capitalism and freedom, which talked about the negative income tax. Mm -hmm. And around the same time, Rose wrote this pamphlet 
about the question of poverty in the United States. And it says nothing about the guaranteed income. It's very different mm -hmm. than what Friedman said. And I sort of felt like she was like, you know, I need to say my own thing mm -hmm. in my own pamphlet. Um, I would say their big disagreement came towards the end of their life when um, he was very against the Iraq war and she was in favor of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she thought we need to go in and, and take out this terrible dictator. And he thought basically some version of war is the health of the state. The war will grow the government. Um, it's a bad move. We shouldn't be, you know, intervening in that way. So um, that's two thousand and three or so, right? Yeah, somewhere around there. And, and yeah. he died in two thousand. Two thousand six. So this is the very end, and it's funny because it's one of the last interviews he does, and a reporter comes, and they're having this raging argument about the Iraq War, and he's trying to interview them, and so that kind of made its way into the interview. <laughs> but um, they had spirited debates. So I learned in the in the Friedman family household. First of all, most conversations were arguments. Mm -hmm. And so it took a, a Friedman's son said, you know, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized you could have a conversation that wasn't an argument. <laughs> um, and then they also had a numerical system to make argument more effective. And um, the, most of it has been lost in the midst of times. But everyone remembers number one means um, you were right and I was wrong. <laughs> and so this was a quick way to kind of shorthand um, and maybe take the temperature down in those arguments. But yes, it, it was a very intellectually intense household. All right. So um, you mentioned George Shultz before, another one of the characters in, in, in his life. And George Shultz is a, is a uh, pillar of the Commonwealth Club. I mean, he's done all yeah. kinds of things okay. here since he retired. Um, and and uh, all the way until he just passed away fairly recently. Um, and so... Why don't you talk about that? Because it's also interesting because he was this, not the same kind of personality as Milton Friedman. Yeah. And Milton Friedman, he's an ideas man, but he was, he was not an introvert. He was an extrovert. Whereas George Shultz seems to be one of these kind of quiet statesmen behind the scenes making things happen, making sure things happen and doing a very good job of it in whatever he did. But he, he, wasn't, he wasn't the one hogging the headlines all the time. Yeah, I think they actually had a, a really great... Um, kind of, they worked together very well for that reason. So um, this particularly came to the fore during the Nixon administration. There were lots of economic upheavals. Among them was the question of what to do with Bretton Woods. And this was the post-World War II currency union that committed the United States to redeeming its currency to a set ratio of gold. And um, as inflation continued, it became harder and harder for the United States to provide gold to anyone who wanted it in exchange for U.S. dollars. They were simply running out of their gold. So Nixon made the kind of very sort of sudden and abrupt decision that the United States would stop doing that. And it was called closing the gold window. And so it created a huge amount of uncertainty and it cast into question the fate of Bretton Woods, which was the post-World War II currency regime, which said, you know, a dollar is worth this much gold, is worth this much of a British pound. It really, it, it set prices internationally. And Friedman never wanted this. And in 1956, he wrote an essay that said, we should just let international currencies float one, one again the other. And this was kind of a crazy idea at the time because Bretton Woods was seen as both a financial system and a geopolitical system that kept the West together and that was intended to prevent you know, a third world war and hold the line against Soviet communism. And he said, no, I can see the world where basically currencies will have a price. They'll go up and down, right? And this is the world we live in today. If you've ever decided to go on vacation and suddenly looked at the exchange rate and wished you hadn't planned that vacation or decided <laughs> to stay in a much nicer hotel, you know, either way it goes. So, um, so 
he was in the in the background and uh, Schultz, his good friend, was elevated to the head of the Treasury while this question was in the air. And so Friedman was basically feeding his ideas about what to do to Schultz. And then Schultz would kind of slowly work them through the system because, you know, Friedman was great at garnering headlines, but he was not great at the kind of slow boring through institutions and the slow compromise and horse trading. And so it was interesting because Schultz kind of used his intellectual firepower to get clarity on what needed to be done. And then Schultz himself would sort of execute it. And so it's really funny because I looked through all these different memoirs. And so Schultz is saying in his recorded you know, history, how he was taking these ideas from Friedman and kind of feeding them up. Um, and then, and one of the people who was responsible for executing on the policy was Paul Volcker, mm-hmm. who actually hated Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. And so Volcker's like, well, we did it all ourselves, you know? And I'm like, so I think like, you know, Schultz basically knew if I say Milton Friedman says that his own staff would revolt. And so he just kind of kept it in the in the sidelines. But then, you know, you go through the oral histories and you see the memos that they send back and forth. And I'm like, yeah, Friedman was definitely like feeding him ideas. So it was very interesting yeah. scenario. Well, you, you mentioned this about, about how Friedman's role, influential as it was, was as an advisor in all these. He never had an official position in the government, and, and, but he had all kinds of friends and even former students, all kinds of things like that. But you did talk about how successful he was in academic infighting. Yes. You know, so that's a different kind of the same thing. Yeah, that has been, it's funny, the, the economists who read this book are like, I didn't know it was so yeah. vicious back in the day, you know? <laughs> so um, one of the episodes I talk about was he got in a power struggle with a group of economists called the um, Cowles Commission, mm-hmm. and they were um, very mathematically inclined. They had many um, scholars from Europe, and they were um, left-leaning and focused on economic planning, and they were using mathematical techniques to design sort of ever more complicated economic plans. And so Friedman was both opposed to them politically and methodologically because he favored a much simpler approach to economics kind of based on this this deep empirical work that I described with Schwartz. With Schwartz. And so he basically decided that it's either us or them, you know? And so um, it got very intense to the point where he would show up at the seminars and kind of relentlessly drill them with questions. And you'd have, you know, some immigrant from Sweden who's just picking up English, who's sort of not able to respond very well to Friedman's relentless questioning. And it got to the point where one of the um, economists with whom he clashed actually had a sort of a mental breakdown and had to you know, leave the department for a while and kind of take, take some, t- some personal time. It was like a therapeutic music camp, you know. Yeah. And I mean, Friedman kind of drove him over the edge. And then eventually he it convinced the Rockefeller Foundation to take to give the grant that they were giving to this group to give it to him instead. Mm-hmm. And after that, they were like, okay. And they went to Yale and they had a, a quite a good career at Yale, but he drove them out of Chicago. You know, he wanted to create his own intellectual world in that university. So um, that was, yeah, that was an, a, a fascinating episode. And yeah, sounds yeah. like he could have been good in government. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, one of the things that happened um, that he got pulled into now that his ideas are being used and thought about in the government is the the Chile incident. Mm. So why don't we why don't we talk about that? Because it's also I mean it's a famous from many points of view. But I didn't know Milton Friedman was involved in it. Yeah, let me see if I can or, get or Henry Kissinger that. sort of thing, and it's a good thing to mention. Uh, yeah, right on this. 
uh, maybe two days ago or something. So this is um, Friedman receiving the Nobel Prize in 1976. And uh, before this moment, there was a disruption in the hall and someone started shouting, Viva Chile, freedom for Chile. It was a protester there and they were protesting this uh, link between uh, Milton Friedman and the dictator of Chile, Augusto Pinochet. And so I get questions on this all the time. I knew this was something I'd really have to dig into in the book. So I spend about a whole chapter on it. And a lot of what I'm trying to do, first of all, is just sort of show how Chile became this flashpoint in this sort of battle of ideas over the 20th century. And um, so the University of Chicago at the behest of the, uh, it was USAID or another developmental arm of the United States government had been sponsoring Chilean students to come to the University of Chicago and be trained in, you know, American economics. And most economic approaches in Chile were similar to anywhere in South or Central America. It was called import substitution industrialization. So protectionism, closed markets, um, very interconnected bonds between corporations in the state, um, the state really fostering different industries, um, and so that was the approach in Chile. And then they were the, the U.S. government was trying to foster another more sort of pro-markets, open trade, um, uh, separation of you know, business and government, trying to promote that. They really got nowhere. The, the students who trained in Chicago would come back to Chile and they would have these weird ideas that nobody thought made any sense. They became they were kind of they were called the Chicago boys. It was kind of a derogatory term for this group of foreign trained economists. And they went about their business, published their papers. And then um, over time, in 1973, there was a democratically elected socialist government that came into power, Salvador Allende. And so um, Allende was um, in, committed to a school of Marxism, which said you needed to move the revolution really fast and you needed to move pretty quickly on expropriations. And so they nationalized large segments of the economy, 90% of the banking system, um, took over a lot of large corporations. And um, a lot of people left the country, and they also printed a lot of money to pay for an expansive social state. So by three years into the Allende regime, they had 600% inflation, huge amount of political upheaval and unrest, and eventually a military coup overthrew the government led by Pinochet. And there were some U.S. state involvement, state of Brazil was involved, lots of different things going on, in a very violent and bloody coup. After about a year... Pinochet had made a little bit of headway. Inflation is 300 percent. It's not 600 percent, but it's still 300 percent. And at that point, the Chicago boys were able to come into the government and say, look, we have a different set of ideas. We have a completely different approach. Why don't you work with us? Why don't you try something different? And at that moment, as that policy was being considered, they got in touch with Friedman and said, can you come and can you talk about the approach we want to take? And so Friedman came to Chile. He did a six-day visit. During that, he met with Pinochet. He kind of explained when you have this type of inflation, you have to like just sort of cut your budget. You ought to put in some relief programs, but it's going to hurt. And then we're going to get through it and you won't have as much inflation. And he apparently from accounts of the meeting, he also said, look, if you liberalize the economy and the way you're thinking about it, you're going to have to liberalize your society eventually. Like it's, you know, it's the, the two of them go together. So then he flies home and shortly after... Um, he got back uh, Pinochet's, uh, the, the sort of stark secret police assassinated uh, one of the members of the government in Washington, D.C., and then like a, an exile. And then three weeks later, Freeman got awarded the Nobel Prize ceremony. So this kind of series of events combined to create the impression that 
the Nobel Prize was an endorsement of Friedman was an endorsement of Pinochet. And so it, it became um, a very a political cause celeb and Friedman was subject to a huge amount of criticism for it. And so what I try to do in the book is kind of pull this apart a little bit. And so that I think there's definitely some legitimate grounds for criticizing what Friedman did, but I think those need to come from a ground of facts. Mm -hmm. And basically the other thing I feel is a lot of times people approach this through the lens of like, um, in the American context, when in in American domestic politics, if you work as an economic advisor to a president, it's because you support that president and you support their political goals and their aims and you are aligned. That's why you work for them. This visit to Chile is much more understood as American economists flying around to countries that are doing things wrong and telling them you're doing it wrong. You know, he went to China, he went to Yugoslavia, he went to a lot of different places and said, you're doing it wrong. You should do it like the United States. So this got mixed into saying, well, Friedman must be a supporter of Pinochet because he went there during the regime and told them what to do. And so he definitely did not understand that would happen to him. And he he made some criticisms of the government and then over time uh, made more. He never said he supported the government. So I think sometimes it's it's assumed he was a supporter because he went there and there's just no evidence for that. Um, and the other thing I think about it is we have this tendency today to believe that the way you communicate your moral values is by separating yourself very clearly and distinctly from anybody um, who might not share those values. And that to engage with someone who doesn't have your values is the same thing as endorsing those values. And I don't think that was the framework Friedman was working in at all. He did not think that by going to this country, he was saying, I'm in favor of and a supporter of this military dictatorship. I think his thought was, you know, I know a lot about inflation. I'm actually, he's actually the world expert in inflation at that time. This country has 300% inflation. That is bad for everybody in the country. If I can tell them what to do, that will reduce that inflation. That I should do that. And I think the, the, the question is, should he have said, no, I won't go because if I go, I might be perceived as a supporter of an illiberal regime. And so therefore I, I'm not going to tender my advice. And so to me, it also points to this gap between 1975 and, you know, 2023 in terms of how we think about what is morally appropriate action and, you know, how should like technical technical experts, how, how should they use their expertise and what should they do? So it's kind of a long answer, but it's really complicated and I get so many questions about it. I appreciate the time to kind of spell it out a little oh, bit. Oh, absolutely. And uh, maybe one of the complicating factors was another conservative economist, F.A. Hayek, who's also very famous actually supported the way that the Pinochet government was. And so did that? Yeah, I think that's um, part of it. More obviously. Hayek said a lot of the things that are kind of attributed to Friedman, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, maybe it's not so bad to have a dictator, you know? And so, <laughs> um, so, so um, Friedman didn't say anything like that. But I think sometimes there's like this mind meld. It's like Friedman, Hayek, they're all the same, you yeah, know? And right, so yeah. um, that was quite different. And in fact, he started to get really concerned by this idea, which the the critic his critics started to advance, which was there's some connection between authoritarianism and capitalism. They mm -hmm. say, oh, it's not a coincidence that Friedman went there because capitalism is inherently authoritarian. And then some um, Chileans connected with the government started to say, you're right, we could only have this capitalist system in an authoritarian state. And Friedman was like, no, 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 wait, this is not what I meant to say at all. This is not true at all. And so he goes back in 1980 and is really like, no, that this is, there is no connection between capitalism and authoritarianism. And actually there's a stronger connection 
between capitalism and political freedom. Mm. And political freedom is really important to capitalism, mm -hmm. just as capitalism is really important to political freedom. They're very interwoven. And so I think he also stepping back and watching the long history of Chile, which um, did in 1980, there was a referendum and Pinochet agreed to stand down from power, which he eventually did, and it transitioned into a democratic country. And for him, that was, I mean, that was a, a desired outcome. That was a very positive outcome. Mm -hmm. And he felt like, yes, that's what I said would happen. They, they, they liberated their economy, and over time, they ended up liberating their political system as well. So for him, that was a good outcome. And incidentally, it convinced him that China would not stay communist. Mm -hmm. And he was just convinced. He, he saw Tiananmen Square, and he said, there's going to be another Tiananmen Square and another Tiananmen Square, and eventually they are going to end up with more of a democratic capitalist system. Now, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but he's looking at, at Chile as an example of how things go and really believing that'll happen in China also. Now, the, um, a couple of things that, you, that, that we were discussing there. Um, there was something in the paper around the same time in your book that you mentioned that somebody wrote that it was ironic that that Milton Friedman, as a conservative, was interested in poor people, mm. right? As, as if, as if, again, along the lines of capitalism and authoritarianism, it was why would a conservative economist ever think anything about poor people? Who cares? You know, yeah, they're all heartless, and he he didn't like that either. Um, but and and then the other the other element was that uh, another part of this uh, was uh, a Commonwealth Club event that he spoke at. Yes, uh, so the the. Chilean event had an influence right here. Uh, he spoke here in 1977. Um, and that, by the way, if anyone's interested in hearing uh, his speech, it's in the archives of the Hoover Institute from 1977. So you can still listen to his words um, and his voice. So, Yeah, and that came after he was being very publicly denounced and criticized um, in uh, uh, about the Chilean connection. It's interesting because his daughter came to the event and she said he she'd never seen him so close to tears because of that criticism that had been leveled at him. A, a San Francisco columnist had sort of denounced him the day before the event. Mm. Um, but you asked about this question of, you know, he he really felt like the question of poverty and conservatism or, or free market economics. And what I was interesting to me is that from the very early days, he was a participant in the Mont Pelerin Society, which is one of the kind of early meetings of 20th century kind of global conservatives thinking about how do we create a new form of classical liberalism. And his like hobby horse, his like drum he's beating is this minimum income. And he's like, look, we have to deal with poverty. Like this is an issue we have to confront. We have to figure out a way to solve it. Um, that's not going to create a drag on the economy. What he liked about the minimum income is he said it'll be what today we call an automatic stabilizer. So if you set the floor and the economy goes down, more people get the benefit, and that's good. It, you know, creates some support. If the economy is rip-roaring away, fewer people need it, and that's good too. And so he really followed that idea. He, he advocated it quite um, consistently. What is true is that in the 1960s, he was sort of the main game in town for conservatives and Republicans in discussing this type of social policy. And so um, he was sort of a lonely voice. Eventually, in the 1970s, there would become more of a developed policy apparatus around this. And in fact, that would crowd out the negative income idea because it's it's very much uh, an idea that is based on undoing government paternalism. So what Friedman really emphasizes, the thing about this idea is 
you don't have to be, it's a, it's a number. If you meet the number, you get the benefit. And this is in a moment where there's a lot of um, rules and regulations around who gets welfare. You know, if you're, they ha would have a welfare inspector would come to your house if you were a woman, if they saw a man's hat. They would say, ah, oh, there's a man in the house. I'm going to cut your welfare benefit, mm -hmm. right? So and this is very sort of like intrusive welfare state. So he thought we could create a system that would do away with that, that type of, um, uh, you know, that, that type of investigation. But it turns out a lot of people like to investigate how people are living when they receive government funds. So that was actually one of the least popular aspects of his idea. But it's still out there today. I mean, there's still a lot of interest in universal basic income and pilot programs around it. So I think, you know, this idea may yet have its day in the sun. I like what he said about that intrusiveness. He called it an intolerable amount of paternalism. Right. right? Yes. It was very interesting for a fairly paternal guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's let's uh, back up on two things uh, tangentially here. One of them was you mentioned that he, uh, a while ago, you mentioned that he didn't like the big economic modeling that was mm -hmm. being done. Um, and he had a particular experience with that. He, he, he was a mathematician. He understood th that modeling and that he used uh, regression analysis and he, he had some other statistical innovations that were big and used in, in, in many ways before he became an economist in a way. Um, so he was an innovator as a young man in this area. But he, he used the statistical regression, I think, uh, to analyze what might be the best alloy to use in an airplane of all yes. things. I mean, it has yes. nothing to do with econo economics at all, just a mathematical thing. And he was convinced that this analysis would work. And then they tested the alloys and... Yeah, that was a really fascinating moment. So during the war, he worked for the statistical research group. So he was top secret security clearance, doing all this statistical analysis. And the breakthrough he made, I'll just describe briefly, was, um, well, first of all, I'll say there's something called the Friedman test. If there's any statisticians out there, it's still included in different software packages. And it has to do with sort of figuring out quickly how much testing you need to do to feel confident mm -hmm. in your conclusions. And so for the military, he basically worked out a test. He conceived a test where instead of having to test, you know, 100 rounds of ordnance, you could figure out pretty quickly you know, if they're good or not, um, you could test 40 and decide, okay, I've got enough numbers there. And so he he worked that out with a couple of very high level mathematicians and that became um, sequential analysis, which mm -hmm. is kind of a still known to the field and one of these important breakthroughs. Then, so so he's having this, like he's making breakthroughs, he's like doing all this great stuff. And one of his jobs was to be a clearinghouse for different um uh, innovations in military technology. And so he started getting an idea and he said, I have an idea for a new alloy, a new metal. And um, and so he sat down and did his regression analysis and his statistical, you know, analysis and said, this is this is a new formula. I want to use this formula. And then and he actually was able because of his connections, he sent his formula to Harvard's Mark One, which was one of the first computers as big as this room. You know, they've switches, gears, paper, punch cards. They run it through Mark One and they say, Yeah, this is good. And he says, Great. Then he's able to get a lab to create this actual alloy. And then they put it in their tester. And he thinks this is like a supersonic new metal. It's like mm. faster, lighter, stronger. And they put it in the oven and it just fails utterly. And so he really took a lesson from this. He's like, Wow, in theory, according to my equation, this was a breakthrough. And in reality, it was not. 
And so when he leaves the statistical research group and he goes back to the field of economics and he sees all these economists saying like, I've got this great regression that's going to tell us how to manage the economy. He's like, I'm not, I don't think so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It, it's such a great story because I, mean, I would never have thought that, that he would have tried to figure out an alloy. I mean, it just didn't seem like part of his whole story, but, but it's a great story. And the other thing that I wanted to go back to was you, you mentioned about the 60s. He developed, of course, a relationship with William F. Buckley, who was mm -hmm. doing the conservative movement from another point of view. So why don't you tell a little bit about, about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, he actually, his first interactions with Buckley were he and a group of friends sent Buckley a, a critical letter because they didn't like something he said about them in National Review. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of, he said something about the Mont Pelerin Society. They're sort of defensive. And then the correspondence kind of goes away. And then um, one thing that's important to note is Friedman felt that he wanted to help shape a new type of conservative movement in the United States. And he was always fighting against what he called the crackpot conservatives, radical right fringe. And in the 1950s, he said the crackpots are, he called the McCarthy-McCormick wing of the Republican Party. This is uh, uh, Joseph McCarthy, the anti-communist, and, and uh, Robert McCormick, the um, publisher of the Chicago Tribune. And they are isolationist, they're anti-Semitic, they're conspiratorial. And he wants to sort of push them to the side. And in the 1960s, it's the John Birch Society, which is a deeply conspiratorial kind of secret movement um, that's, you know, obsessed with the communist infiltration in the United States to an absurd degree. And so Buckley decides at a certain point in the 60s that he, too, wants to push the John Birch Society kind of out of respectable politics. And he publishes a series of letters and, and articles in National Review attacking them. It's not super successful because the Birchers don't really go anywhere, but it gets Friedman's attention. And mm -hmm. then he starts, like, writes to Buckley and says, like, I really appreciate your campaign against the Birch Society. Like, you know, let's get together sometimes. So they end up meeting in New York and, um, you know, they start a friendship. By the 1980s, they're taking an annual ski trip together. You know, they're very, very close friends. And so I think... I think it was a mutual advantage relationship because Buckley was trying to create a version of conservatism that he thought would be very driven by ideas that would be acceptable to American elites that would have lots of policy ideas that would have new principles and ideologies. And so Friedman just appeared as like the perfect embodiment of all this. It's also very important that Friedman is Jewish because the shadow side of American conservatism, actually the a dominant strain has always been anti-Semitism and isolationism. And Buckley wants to rebuke all that. And so he says, there's nothing better than to make my sort of signature intellectual, this Jewish economist, this signals we are in a new place. This is a new and different type of conservatism that I'm promoting. So, so it was a very symbiotic relationship, I would say. Yeah. And, and, if you said, what are the most famous names of this trend, the post-World War II trend in conservatism, it's the, at least those two are on the list of five, right? I would think so, yeah. yeah. So um, we have time for some questions from the audience. Um, do we have some here? Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. First question, right up to date. Who would Friedman vote for? <laughs> Biden, uh, Trump, or Kennedy? Biden, Trump, or Kennedy? Uh, I'm going to say he'd vote for Nikki Haley. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> um, 
In this amazing journey, did either Friedman or Schwartz ever encounter or engage the question of whether money might be a public trust rather than just regular property? Hmm. While you're answering that question, let's talk about Anna Schwartz again a little bit more because yeah. I, that was a, something we were going to get back to. Yeah. Uh, it's an important sto- part of the story, I think. Yeah, so Schwartz is, is fascinating because she um, decides to pursue studies in economics. She's actually co-authors a three-volume set on the British economy before she meets Friedman. And then she's a staffer at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And again, this, the fact that she's working on money tells you money is not a hot topic. And it sounds strange to be like, economists used to not care about money, but they did because <laughs> they thought money was a veil. There was economic activity and money reflected that economic activity, didn't really drive it in any profound way. So Schwartz and Freeman get partnered together. Um, and this whole time, you know, I'm reading their letters back and forth because he was in Chicago, she was in New York. Long distance phone calls are prohibitively expensive. So they're writing their letters back and forth. And, you know, Schwartz will be like, oh, I took the kids to a baseball game. Like, okay, about that data, blah, 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 you know. Um, or like, my dad's really sick. Like, I'm sorry, I couldn't answer your letter. You know, so she's having this very rich family life. She has four kids. And incidentally, she and Arthur Burns do not get along at all. Mm-hmm. And Burns says to her when she joins the bureau, she's got two kids. He says, don't have any more kids. You won't be able to do anything. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have two more. So she has four kids. She's married to a a man who has his own career. This is very unusual to have a working mother of four kids doing this high-level economics research. And as I said, she gets no respect from her um, colleagues. And and after a while, she sends Friedman this letter. And she's like, you know what? They're trying to kick me out of the Columbia Library. I have a room there because I'm technically a graduate student in Columbia. And he's like, why are you still a graduate student? And she's like, well, I I am still a graduate student, and I'd like to use part of our work as a dissertation. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. He's like, I don't know why you didn't do this. And she'd actually tried to do it, and they'd said no. So she tries again, and they're like, no, this is a co-authored work. It's not a dissertation. Well, guess who has a co-authored dissertation from Columbia? Milton Friedman, right? (laughs) And so... And then the letters peter out, and then it comes back to the, we're leading up to the, the book is done, we're coming up to it, and she's like, you know what, um, I still don't have the doctorate. And he's like, what? Like, you didn't work this out? And he's like, no. And, and he's like, well, what do they say now? And they say, well, you can't incorporate feedback from your committee because it's in galleys. Like it's done. And, and then, they, so it can't be a dissertation because you can't incorporate feedback. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, this massive 10-year project has been around the block many times. And all of these faculty members know exactly what's going on with it. So that's when Freeman kind of loses it. And he basically calls, he chews out a couple people and he's like, this is ridiculous. Just give her the doctorate. And they finally do. But is incredible and sort of heartbreaking, you know, because like she's writing this letter, by the way, like, do you think I could use this for my doctorate? You know, <laughs> like, this is like, one of the most important books in economics in the 20th century. And they're like, not not good enough. So, um, so that was very, very illuminating and oh. um, and sort of poignant. So did I answer the question? The question is about the kind of social function of money. And I would say um, one way to approach that is Friedman always felt the state has this really fundamental role in money, in creating money, in maintaining a stable monetary system. And I would say for him, that is kind of a social and public good, that you create a stable monetary system 
that then kind of fades into the background and people just go about their lives. And that's one of the sort of core responsibilities of the state rather than if there's too much manipulation of the money, it, it, people are always wondering, like, am I going to be able to afford this next year or should I wait to invest? Or maybe I should just kind of sit on my cash because I don't know what's going to happen next. So I think that was kind of how he thought of it as really sort of serving the substrate of, of a healthy society. And the, I talk about a lot, the paradox of monetary policy is if it's done right, nobody notices it. If it's done wrong, everybody notices it. So Freeman was constantly having to sort of explain like to politicians, like if you do it right, you're going to get no credit. Like, I'm really sorry, but that's how it works, you know? So, so that makes it very tricky. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're not going to be able to go into it in, in detail, but you, it was impressive the way you wrote about it, but also his idea that the stability of the system was far more important than the actual percent of increase. I mean, you have to make the money increase with the population and the economic activity so that it doesn't cause inflation, so there's all those other calculations. But he thought that the target percentage wasn't nearly as important as keeping it stable so people could predict what was going to happen. I thought that was a very yeah. human psychology idea rather than a mathematical idea. Yeah, and that goes back to this broader idea that he also learned at Chicago, which was rules over discretion. And he applied that to monetary policy and just economic policy more generally. His And, and this also... Hayek talks a lot about this, and you see some of the threads of Hayek's influence here as well, that the idea is to create transparent and stable rules that people know about. And almost it doesn't matter as much what the rules are, just that they're there and they're stable, and therefore people can make plans independent of the basic structures changing. So for monetary growth, you know, he ended up saying K percent, which meant like fill in your percent, you know, four maybe, but whether it's 2%, 4%, 5%. Okay, there's definitely a percent at which it's too much. But it, what matters is that people know and it's predictable and they can make their plans on it. And and that money growth rule is really the ancestor of inflation targeting, which is the dominant approach now in the United States and across the globe. So that rules over discretion, it, it, Friedman really kind of won the battle in that. And one last detail about Anna Schwartz. So uh, you, I think you mentioned, I think it was her in the book, that she kept going to the seminars all the way into her 90s. That's true. You know? That's true. There's a, yeah. I, I think you know, her, her diffidence in, in the letters you know, is at a certain point, but she didn't stay that, that diffident. That's true. That's yeah. true. She's very, uh, I mean, she's busy and probably busy and overwhelmed in the, in the peak years of her career. And then she eventually gets the credit that she deserves. She graduates with nine, or she, when she passes away, she has nine honorary degrees. And she goes to the NBER office like every day until basically her last day. And people are in awe of her and they're afraid. And she has a very sharp tongue where she will say like, mm, maybe it has promise. You know, someone will yeah. come to the legend and present their ideas. And But she also becomes this legendary figure for the generation of women who do go into the field of economics in the 1970s. And they're looking around for pioneers or exemplars, and really they're finding Anna Schwartz is one of the few there. Um, and yeah, she's a, she's a fascinating lady. And it's been, I've gotten to know or correspond at the very least with some of her relatives. And so um, it's, a, it's a really neat story. And she deserves her own biography too, if there's anybody out there looking for a good book topic. <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking. That was where I was going next. She's a very fascinating person. Um, 
So I think you mentioned something in your book about this. What would Friedman think of MMT, modern monetary theorists? If you have a fiat currency, print all the money you want because you'll never go broke. Oh, yeah. No, he wouldn't agree. He would say, well, that's how you get inflation. You know, yeah. <laughs> you need inflation. It's actually, um, it's a rework of Abba Lerner's functional finance, which he was well aware of in the 1930s. And so... Um, the other thing, the one thing to keep in mind in with MMT that people don't always uh, realize is it has it has in mind a fully different uh, institutional architecture than we currently have. So it's possible if you made all the institutional changes that are embedded in the MMT framework that it would work. But in the current moment, it it is a recipe for inflation. Here's a very specific one, and you do cover it. Um, can you describe the difference, if any, between Friedman and those of Arthur Laffer, the Laffer curve economics theory? Yeah, that's an interesting moment. So um, this happens later in Friedman's career, and uh, as I'm describing, he has an idea that the state is important to society and to economic life, but he becomes increasingly dismayed at the rate of growth in the federal state. And by the 1970s, he's becoming much more anti-government. So Laffer and supply-side economics has, you know, the basic idea that if you cut tax rates, you can get more tax receipts uh, because you'll generate so much economic activity. And he says, sure, in some way, this is probably true. Um, the way they're describing it, it's not true. There's also tax rates where when you cut the tax rates, you just cut the tax receipts. And then he says, but I'm going to support it anyhow, because if we cut taxes, that will reduce the size of government. And I now believe that's the single most important thing. And so that's a real kind of turning point. And he eventually becomes one of the people who's saying, you know, it's budget deficits are not as bad as we thought. And that contributes to this broader shift in the Republican Party towards an embrace of deficits, which was absolutely what Republicans did not stand for, you know, 50s, 60s, they were anti-deficit, and then they become more comfortable with them. And so Freeman does play some role in that. All right. Uh, next question. What advice would Milton Friedman say or give to President Biden. You, you quote President Biden as saying, it's no longer the world of Milton Friedman. Right, it's no longer the world of Milton Friedman. Um, <laughs> you know, I think he would be, um, I'm not sure, I don't think he would support industrial policy to the extent that it has become part of Bidenomics, the, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of trying to support certain industries. I think he would say, be careful, you're going to get out in front of you're, you know, you're going to, you're trying to create, you're hoping that supply is going to create its own demand. And that's probably not how it's going to work. You probably should focus more on the incentives, um, to the extent of trying to do environmental, um, address the issues of global warming. I think he would say, if you can harness incentives and make it profitable for people to address that, that would be better. I think he'd be a carbon tax guy. You have, you have a chart about What's more valuable than others? Incentives are more valuable than regulation and priorities are that. I thought that was very, very fascinating to nice, easy way to put it down. So here well, we have one more question, but uh, I'd like to again thank uh, the Bernard Osher Foundation for having supported the uh, program. And uh, the question is, can you say more about uh, Friedman's views of the position of government in the economy and how similar or different that is from the status quo of, of today? Oh, right now. Sure. Yeah. Um, so as I said, towards the end of his life, he became just increasingly convinced that the dynamic of government in some intrinsic way was growth. And he became, therefore, increasingly committed to whatever I can do to slow it down. 
And so he felt the most important, one of the most important metrics for him was the amount of taxes relative to GDP. And so I think in his lifetime, it was 30%, maybe going up to 40%. And he wanted it to be 10%. Mm -hmm. So just step back and think about that. That's a very significant reduction in the size of government. It really kind of goes back to the size pre-New Deal. Right. So he would be saying, that's, that's where I want to get us to. And let's think of different ways to try to get there. Um, so I, that's a, that, there's a long road to that. Um, Lots of incentives yeah. rather than... It would need to be a lot of incentives. Regulations and, the bad version of that would be collapse. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the good version of that would be ratcheting down until you get there. But he was practical. I mean, he didn't... He, he didn't I mean, he had all these, these ideas, but he was practical about how they had to go into effect, and he, was, he, he would adjust his ideas a little bit. Yeah, he never practical. got to the burn it all down yeah. moment that... that some of us are in today. Yeah. Uh, so he, you know, he never got that far because I think he's very aware that he, anarchy is not an option for him. He's very aware that you need a, a state to kind of stabilize the system and to protect minorities and to, you know, keep things on a stable, even keel. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I know he would still be anti-government were he alive today. I don't know exactly the mechanisms he'd be favoring. <laughs> well, that was one of the safest comments that you've made all day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so ends another event, the Commonwealth Club, and it's 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thank you all for coming uh, live. And uh, we hope that those of you who watched on YouTube enjoy this discussion of uh, one of the most influential economists of the 20th century and into the 21st. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for, for joining us at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you very much. Uh, the point of that title to my book is, uh, is shown by your chairman's remarks. Because even if I do not pay for it, I assume that the Commonwealth Club is not getting it for free. <laughs> and if the Commonwealth Club is not getting it for free, is getting it for free, I assume then somebody who's supporting them, I don't believe that the people who produced that uh, the, the chicken you ate and the other things, I don't believe they went home without getting paid for what they produced. So there is no such thing as a free lunch. With respect to the talk today, Herb Cain, in Wednesday's Chronicle, provided an extraordinarily apt illustration of the theme of my talk today. In his column, he wrote, to begin with, and I quote, Dr. Milton Friedman speaks at the Commonwealth Club Friday on liberal McCarthyism, which he translates as a tendency of the left 
to find no fault on the left, only on the right. So far, so good. But then, with his unerring instinct for slanted inaccuracy, <laughs> He added a few words. He added the words, and I quote, and vice versa, hair professor. Let me ask this audience what the features of McCarthyism were that we all of us found so objectionable in the 1950s. The chief features of McCarthyism that we found so objectionable was the attempted character ass assassination by unsubstantiated charges, the use of guilt by association, an innuendo in seeking to associate people with unpopular causes. But is that not precisely what Mr. Cain is doing? Is he not illustrating in precise detail how the McCarthyist, uh, McCarthyite tactics, which were used in the 1950s by Joe McCarthy against the left, are being used now by Mr. Cain and similar liberals against what they regard, rightly or wrongly, as the right? Consider his statement vice versa. If Mr. Cain had ever read anything I had written, which he obviously has not, <laughs> he would have known that I have consistently opposed special privilege and special interest on the right or on the left. He would have known, for example, if the, your president here will pardon me, that most recently I have been very open and above board in condemning the attempt by the steel industry to get special treatment in the way of quotas or tariffs for imports of steel. But that's not the worst of it. Consider his slur. Suppose in 1950s, Senator Joe McCarthy had referred to Mr. Kane as Comrade Kane. Do you suppose Mr. Kane would have liked that? He would have been indignant and justly indignant. And I resent just as deeply being referred to by Mr. Kane as Hare Professor, which can have only one objective to try to insinuate by innuendo that there is something Nazi about the position that I am maintaining. That is liberal McCarthyism at work. If you want to see an example of real Nazism, you have it outside this room and outside this hotel, in the mindless puppets who are stalking the halls, objecting to my speaking to you. 